what can we do to increase income? Right. Because in so many of these cases, yes, it's, well, you know, I already work 40 hours a week. What more can I do? Well, there's a lot more hours in a week than 40. And I realize you have to sleep some of it and take care of your kids some of it, but you don't have to work a nine to five job. You can drive for Uber or DoorDash on the weekends. Like there is in our quote unquote gig economy, plenty of stuff you can do. And often if it's like you can increase your income by $400 a month and put all of that toward debt, I can show you, well, look how quickly this stuff all starts to melt away if all that extra income goes toward debt. Yeah. So, you know, I could talk about this for hours, but bottom line is there's always a way out. It's just a question of how disciplined and motivated are you to make it happen. Welcome to episode 310 of the Business with Purpose podcast. I am your host, Molly Stillman, and usually every week on this show, I get to sit down with an incredible entrepreneur, business leader, community activist, author, speaker, somebody who's trying to make... And isn't that true this week? It is true this week. <laughs> I was going to say, why, why are you trying to make it sound like this is an exception? I'm just saying. But, you know, somebody's trying to make a, make a positive impact. Well, okay, fair point. Okay. Uh, not only through their personal life, but also with their career. My goal is to show you with this show that no matter what you do for a living, you can make an impact wherever you are. And uh, usually, you know, on the 10s, the 300, 310, you know, et cetera, et cetera, is a solo episode. But here we are at episode 310, and this is an extremely requested episode. Well, I knew we would eventually get to the point where your audience would want an episode on sex tips. So oh, John, here, st- oh my here we are. Oh, Grace, I'm, edit this I'm, out. I'm, I'm glad you brought me in for this. <laughs> okay. No, we are talking money today. And oh, really? when I say- When you said you wanted me to come on, I assumed, okay. Okay. We'll do money. John Stillman. Okay, so- This episode, when I tell you that this is by far the most requested episode that I've had in the last six years, I am not exaggerating whatsoever. Um, I have had so many of you email me, DM me and say, could you and your husband do an episode of money? And I've just kind of avoided it. And I honestly don't really know why. But after episode 300, I got enough emails that I was like, okay, fine, we'll what, do it. What was episode 300? What that did was, we do? We just sat down and we just answered random questions. Random questions, okay. Random questions. So to start off, welcome to my husband, John Stillman. Well, welcome to my studio. Yeah, we are in your studio. So usually I record my episodes from my office in the house and here we are in the barn, but it's very late at night because otherwise it's too hot in here to record. Um, Okay, so I wanna give some context for the listeners as for anybody who might be tuning in and is like, well, why should I care about what this guy has to say? So we met working at a radio station and you are now a financial advisor, but you also host or own a media company. And so you do radio shows and you do podcasts. So why should people listen to you for financial advice? What's the context behind the fact that you're a financial advisor? I mean, I don't know that they should listen to me because oh, I'm gosh. kind of an idiot. No, you're not. Okay. John Stillman, <laughs> you are not setting this up the way you're supposed to. Okay. So <laughs> you're not an idiot. You're arguably one of the smartest people I know. But for real, like how did you become a financial advisor when you well, went so, to school for journalism yeah. and radio? So I was a journalism major and one of my jobs... You know, I migrated from the radio station to working for a financial advisor who did a lot of radio shows for other financial advisors. So I spent a lot of my day interviewing other financial advisors. And then after a while, I said, huh, you know, a lot of you guys are not that bright and seem to be doing pretty well. Uh, And once they started asking me how to answer questions that I was asking them, I said, "Okay, well, I should probably just do this job myself. Yeah, this is true. So you went, and I remember this so vividly when I was, this was shortly after I gave birth to Lily because she was a baby. I was nursing her. This was when we lived in our little like 
thousand square foot house in Hillsboro and I was nursing her and you were studying for your you, you would you would uh, be nursing her at night and I'd like lay there on the yeah. carpet next to you reading my little study book yeah while you nurse. I mean I have just such clear memories of this and then you got your series 65 and then you became an advisor and then Fast forward a couple of years, 2000, end of 2015 into 2016, you went out on your own and started your own financial practice. And then you had an office down in South Durham. And now your office is right here where we're in a barn, in a barn. And um, so that's the context for this conversation. And I also want to give a little bit more context other than the fact that, you know, you have like the credentials, you're a CFP. Yeah, that's right. C- certified. CRPC. CRPC. That's what I am. Chartered Retirement Planning Counselor. Okay. So that's, that's your certification in addition to being, you know, having your Series 65 insurance license, all that kind of stuff. In addition to that, I want to give some background into who you are as an individual financially. Hmm. And one of my... This could go a few different directions, but proceed. One of my, I think, honestly, as your wife, which is one of my personal favorite contexts for who you are financially, there's two stories in particular. Number one is the the financial lessons that you learned from your grandfathers growing up. So Mm -hmm. I want you to tell that story first, the difference between Granddaddy Buck and Papa John and the financial lessons you learned from them. Okay, so both of them, I would say, were good with money, but in different ways. Yes. So Buck was a good earner. He was a sales guy. He was a candy salesman. Who knew that was a job you could have? I know. He was literally a candy salesman. Um, so he his clients were like convenience stores and stuff like that. So he represented different candy companies, and he went around and sold candy for a living. So he had a basement full of candy samples. Good person to have as a grandfather. Um <laughs> So he okay, was, wait, real quick. What, what was your favorite that he would give you, or did you steal some? Well, so honestly, um, by the time I came along, he was retired by the time I was born. Okay, so he didn't have as much candy, but he did have a lot of baseball cards because he had the baseball cards with the bubble gum in them. Oh yeah, okay. And I guess like Leaf Leaf Bubble Gum Company oh, yeah, did yeah, a yeah. lot of those. Okay, and okay. so uh, I have still to this day. A baseball cards and basketball so cards and football cards that we're still trying to liquidate. Still. Um, okay. Okay. So. So he was a good earner and also a good investor. He invested in Home Depot in like, I don't know, the early 90s. And that just took off like a rocket ship. And, you know, he died in 2003. And there's still all this Home Depot stock bouncing around in the family that's done pretty well. So he was good with like your classic come home from the war you know, fought in World War II, Battle of the Bulge, all that stuff, right? Came back, uh, did the classic like 1950s Eisenhower era, American dream kind of stuff, made his money. Classic story, right? right. Papa John, my dad's dad, was um, just a savant at not spending money. <laughs> so he never made money. Yeah. He owned a little furniture store. And to this day, I have no idea how he sent four kids to college by running that little furniture store. But he did a lot of stuff on the side. Like he'd repair sewing machines for people and um, he delivered propane gas to people's houses. So he just had a little odd jobs and he somehow made it work for all those years. And he had a heart attack in the nineties and didn't have health insurance. And they paid the hospital like $50 a month until he died. I mean, it was just, he always made it work, but he just never spent money on anything. He had a shed full of stuff. He never threw anything away. And if something broke, if the washing machine broke, he'd go out to the shed, figure out what kind of part he could use to make the washing machine work again, and he wouldn't spend a penny to do it. So um, you have on one hand, the earner and the investor, and on the other hand, the guy who never spent any money. Yeah. And so you learned a lot of that kind of by, I don't know, by osmosis, so to speak, uh, just in the way that you were raised and um, also the way your parents handled money. And the fact that you were, what, 23, 24 when you bought your first house? Uh, let's see, summer of 09. So I was 25. Okay, so you were 25. You bought your first house. You put 20% down. I mean, just the fact all of that. And I love this. Okay, then this is the second story I wanted you to tell is just to to show the kind of person. And, and I think this really sums up who you are financially is tell the story of your senior year of college with the senior class t-shirt situation. <laughs> so um, I think we were at a football game and basically every other senior in my senior class had a class of 2002 t-shirt. And my dad said, why don't you have one of those t-shirts? I was like, well, they're $10. Like, I don't really want to spend the $10. <laughs> I, 
certainly had the $10. I just did not want to spend it on a t-shirt. Right. And he's like, oh my gosh. All right. So here's a $10 bill. Like go tomorrow, buy your t-shirt. Okay. So the next day at lunch at school, I go get in line to get a t-shirt and I'm waiting in line and I'm halfway through the line and I just, I just can't pull the trigger. It's not worth it. Like even with somebody else's money. So I came home that day and I, I gave him, I didn't like keep the $10. I gave him his $10 back. And he's just like, what is wrong with you? <laughs> I think that is so indicative though. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, uh, that is how my husband is still really to this day. Um, I think a little bit different, but I think that also completely sums up who you are. Yeah, if, it's not, if it's not worth it, I'm not spending the money. Not at all. Okay. So here we are with a little bit of context as to who you are as a human being financially. And I'm not just saying this because I'm your wife, but I really do believe and will say, and you might refute this. I really believe that you're one of the smartest people I've ever met. And it's kind of annoying because you're really good at everything and it frustrates me. But also, that's why I love you. So, well, I'm not going to interrupt you while you're giving compliments. <laughs> okay. So, with that being said, um, I put out a call on Instagram and on Facebook and in my newsletter to submit financial questions for this episode because a lot of you, again, had requested this. And so, we are going to do our best to answer the kind of high level questions. A lot of them that were submitted were kind of similar. So, hopefully, in this episode, we answer your questions. So uh, without further ado, let's get on to the questions. All right, question number one. Uh, this one was submitted by Jordan. Budgeting on one income and how to make decisions jointly, even though the income is coming from one person. Not formatted as a question, but I understand exactly what this person is asking. All right, so we're talking about a married couple. One spouse works, the other doesn't. Correct. How do we budget? Correct. Okay. Well, this is less of a money question and more of a marriage question, right? So a lot of times if you have spouses with different incomes, they both work. But let's say one spouse makes $100,000 a year and another makes $50,000 a year. They'll say, well, does one spouse just get more spending money? Like, Well, no, like philosophically... I would say all of the money that comes into the household, it doesn't matter who earns it or whether one person earns nothing and the other person earns everything. All the money that comes into the household is our money. It's not his money and her money. Yeah, It's our money. Mm -hmm. So uh, if you're not going to operate by with that philosophy, then, you know, I'm going to have a hard time advising you because my mind just doesn't work that way. Yeah. Now I do have some clients where man, this is pretty common with second marriages. Because oftentimes with second marriages, both spouses will maintain separate financial lives. Because more often than not, if you have two people that are divorced, at least one of them, even if money wasn't the reason they got divorced, like money was an issue yeah. in their first marriage. And so a lot of people in their second marriage will maintain separate accounts and they each like have their bills that they pay. And, you know, we kind of have to do this calculus to figure out, okay, are we going to have a joint account that everybody puts money into? And then we pay the bills out of that. And then each spouse has their own spending money in their own separate accounts. Second marriages are a little different, right? That, like that. But even in second marriages, I would say you still need to adopt this philosophy of it's all our money. So it's completely irrelevant if one spouse earns more than the other or one earns nothing and one earns everything. So you need to figure out what do we need to do for our family and budget accordingly. So you can't have a husband that says, well, I earn everything. So, um, you know, I should have some spending money and you know, she's got to figure out like she doesn't, she doesn't make any money. She doesn't earn anything. Well, not nah, dude. She's like at home feeding your kids and mm -hmm. cooking your meals. And so, it doesn't work that way. Yeah, I would completely agree with this. And I, I would say that this is a, it, yeah, I would just echo that this is a part of a larger conversation that should you should be having with your spouse. And I even, I would say that some of my closest friends, even from college, like I know a lot of people who have been married for many years are still married and they have completely separate finances. And so I want to say real quick, because I understand that there are going to be people listening who this is how your marriage works, is you have completely separate finances. I also want to say 
I just lovingly and respectfully disagree with that. And so I hope we can lovingly and respectfully disagree with each other on that because I really do believe, again, to echo what John said, philosophically, when you get married, two become one. And so um, there have been seasons in our marriage where, I mean, I kind of think back to when we first got married. I think I made a little bit more than you, and then you made a little bit more than me, and then it was like back and forth. It didn't matter. Once we said I do, our finances were our finances. And I am really grateful that from the day we got home from our honeymoon, I don't really feel like we've ever seen our money as your money and my money. Yeah. Keep in mind that we're, as a culture, the history of the human race, it's only like fairly recently in human history that women have worked. Right. Right. Like we had uh, several thousand years of men doing the earning. Yeah. So this whole idea of his money and her money is a pretty recent development. Yeah. It was for most of history just understood that everything is just the household's money. Yeah. So, And I'm not saying that I like agree with the earlier in history of women not working, but I do think that that is an interesting point of, yeah, it's like this, it's a, it's a newer concept of how do we navigate when you have a husband and a wife who are bringing in either different levels of income or you have a, a wife who is staying at home and, I am going to completely butcher. I have no idea who originally said this. Uh, There's almost no original thoughts anymore anyway. But there's this idea of what's called, quote unquote, invisible labor. And it's uh, how a lot of typically, let's just say historically, I'm not saying that dads don't do this, but historically and especially in the last few years, the invisible labor really comes from moms and women in the household and it's this idea of like uh the moms tend to be the default on like filling out school paperwork and making sure you know i'm not saying that dads don't grocery shop but like tend to fall on the moms i mean and i'm not saying this as a complaint at all but john have you ever filled out a single form for our kids for school um i i know the name of their school Yes, not literally not one time. <laughs> That's and the it's, extent of my it's not. A, I'm not saying that as a complaint, but like you literally never have to think about at all whether the kids have a field trip, whether they have filled out their health forms, whether they've gone to their annual doctor's appointment. That just has always become just it's just sort of a role I fill. And it's not that I don't think you're capable of that. But I think, again, that kind of goes into the larger picture of um, it. We've gone through seasons, again, where you've made more money, I've made more money. Now, obviously, we're in a season where you make more money than me. But that's it. We are a partnership. And so I would just really reiterate that if you are in a marriage or a partnership of any kind where you and your significant other are budgeting financially, it has to be a mindset shift where this is our money and not his money and her money. So I was listening to a guy the other day. Um, I don't even remember where I heard this, but he was talking about how, um, you know, back in the eighties, him and his wife were both making about $50,000, which was a lot of, that was That's a good a salary That's in the eighties. It's like yeah. two fifty now. Yeah. Um, and they didn't even have kids yet, but they decided, look, like we want to create a household where she runs the household and he's the breadwinner. And so before they even were trying to have kids, she quit her job. And he said, at the time I was looking at this as like a million dollar decision. When we think about all the money that she's not going to earn for the next 30 years. Yeah. But he's like, looking back on it, I think this is a guy who was in his early sixties. He said, looking back on it, if I had wanted somebody to you know, provide childcare to my kids, do all my personal shopping, prepare my meals, clean the house, he's like, it would cost me way more than a million dollars to have paid for that over the course of all these years. Yeah. And again, this is not to say that husbands are not capable of this or whatever. It's just how you divide up, uh, you know, general household, you know, maintaining a household. It's just kind of, you know, I think in general, like, I cook because I love to cook. John does the dishes, not because he loves to do the dishes, but because that's just sort of how we divide up the tasks. And, um, you know, we we divide up farm chores equally. 
you know, but I fill out school paperwork. He takes out the trash. But again, like, <laughs> I don't want to sound like we're doing this. Like, all right, you do this and I'll do this. Like, no. we just kind of do our we thing, do. right? Like, it's we just do. understood. We're just going to do our stuff. Right, right. Well, I think this question actually leads perfectly into the next question. And this, <laughs> we're not done. We spent 10 minutes on the first I know, question. I know, so we're off to a good start. We will not spend this much time on each question. But I think this really kind of catapults us into a, a deeper conversation of a couple things. But this one was submitted by Sarah Enjoy. And she said to each take an allowance that each of you can spend on whatever you like. I assume you mean in the monthly budget. Yes, yes we do. We do. Um, so we have a line item in the monthly budget. And yes, we have a monthly budget where we each have a certain amount of cash, not like cold, hard cash, but just like we each have our own spending money um, that we can spend on, you know, whatever. So I think it is important that each person has that money because you, you can't have a conversation about every dollar you spend, right? right. Like it's just not practical <laughs> to, to try to talk about every single purchase you make. Um, and it's also important though, to clarify what things go into that category. Right. So like for us, as an example, if we go out to eat as a family, that's a restaurant line item, right? Like that's not in either one of our spending lines. But if you're out running errands or something and you say, well, I want to go buy Chick-fil-A and get myself a spicy chicken just because I'm craving it. Okay, fine. That's not in the restaurant category though. That's in your spending money. Right. Um, and so it's if you're going to have those separate categories, it's important to clarify the rules of what is a joint expense and what is a you know personal blow money right. expense. And you know, a lot of people say, well, we, we keep separate finances because it keeps us from fighting about money. No. Well, one, you're just avoiding having to communicate really is what that is. But secondly, if you have the blow money category in your budget for each person to have their own spending money, like each person can take whatever they budget and spend whatever they want. Like if you go spend all your blow money on makeup, I don't care. Yeah. <laughs> so you're welcome to do that. Um, so, you know, it's just one of those things where you want to communicate about everything else, but also there's a little pot where you don't have to communicate about it. And like if one of us is buying gifts for the other person, well, yeah. it's going to come out of that pot, right? right. It's going to come out of the blow money pot. So what I see with a lot of spouses is uh, the husband will complain about how much money the wife spends because it's like a death by a thousand cuts kind of thing. Uh, you know, she does this, she spends this, she does her nails here, hair there. And then the husband never spends money except then every seven months he'll go do like buy a boat. Yeah. <laughs> right. And so it's like everything that he didn't spend for those seven months when she was, they end up spending the same amount. Right. Uh, but he just does it in big purchases. Right. Right. And I actually kind of see that, in our spending too. Like you have a pretty consistent every month, you're going to spend most of your spending money. No, and not I, as much as I used to. And I almost never do. But then like, I'll go spend $350 on a gun or, <laughs> um, at Christmas, like I'll dwindle down a lot of my cash buying presents for you. So like, it's, I think our behaviors are pretty typical in that perspective. Yeah. And I would say that our spending habits, yours has not changed at all, really, since we got married. Mine have changed where I would admit that early on in our marriage, I mean, right when we got married was right when I was coming out of a season of getting out of debt where you have never been in debt. And so I struggled early on in our marriage in the first couple of years of figuring out how to manage my quote unquote, like monthly blow money, spending money. Mm -hmm. um, and I would definitely, and I, I think this also was more when I still was working like a day job in an office and I wanted to go out to eat to get out of the office, things like that. So a lot of my money went to food. <laughs> um, whereas I don't spend my quote unquote monthly allowance as much every, anymore. In the pandemic, I definitely like I have my 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 like to a quote from Parks and Rec hashtag treat yourself like I get my book of the month that I have my little like <laughs> my my fragrance of the month like little things like that but I my spending habits have changed drastically since early on in our marriage and I would agree that you definitely tend to do bigger purchases where mine are smaller, but it's interesting how in a lot of ways we've changed in where 
you tend to earmark in your head like okay once we like when we bought this house it was like you were ready to just spend money on things and i was like whoa 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 i don't know that we should spend money on that it was interesting how we really flipped the script on things well once once i've laid out the budget and i've earmarked money for a certain category yeah then I don't have trouble spending money on that category. Yeah. So Whereas I do. I already knew what we were going to spend on the house. I knew what we could put down on it. And I remember when we were on the phone with Margaret, our realtor, and uh, we were making the offer and I just gave her the numbers and you were like, wait, what? Yeah. I looked I like, at you. I said, no, look, we're going to get this house. And because I knew what we could spend yeah. and what we could put down. And so like, it didn't bother me to spend the money because it had already been set aside for that particular purpose. Yeah. So, um, but I do think having that line item allowance in your monthly budget with your spouse or your partner or your, your roommate or whatever it is, is really important because it does give you one, the ability to communicate, but also the ability to just say, Hey, we have this pot of money that no questions asked, you know, you can spend on however you want. Um, and, and I would say also there have been things where like, for example, I am not somebody who tends to go out and spend a lot of money on quote unquote, like aesthetic type things. Like I get my haircut like every two years. And so for the first time this year, so usually what I do when I go to get my haircut, which again is very rare because I'm not somebody who goes to get pedicures a lot. I don't get my haircut a lot. You know, I will tend to say, hey, babe, I really need to get my haircut this month. Can we put something in the budget so I can get my haircut? Because that's like a need, not necessarily just a want. But then this year, I am (laughs) approaching 40 and wanted to color my hair for the first time, which I've never done before. And so my my haircut, which is a need, came out of our joint budget, but my coloring my hair was my cash because that was something I wanted to do. Does that make sense? Yep. Okay. All right. I think that's a good, uh, we've touched on that. Hopefully that is helpful for the people. Okay. On the subject of allowances. The bottom bottom line to all that yes. is that we communicated about we it. We do. Right? We do. It wasn't just like, a, well, I'm just going to do this and see what happens or maybe he won't notice. Yeah. Right. No. Yeah. We, we 100% communicate about it. All right. So on this topic and uh, for the single folks, I promise I have some questions for you coming up in a minute, but I think this leads into, um, there's quite a few people had asked questions about finances with kids. I'm going to just ask one of them because, again, many of you asked this and so this is a lot of similar questions. But uh, Captivating by Amanda said, kid allowance. I don't want to pay for chores, but I want to teach about managing money. And we have a, quite a few other people that just asked about, uh, you know, getting your kids involved in saving, tithing, buying, things like that. Well, I have a lot of thoughts about how to introduce kids to money. Mm -hmm. Um, They are all purely theoretical because they haven't worked at all in real life. (laughs) Um, Amos treats actual hard currency the same way that I treat empty candy wrappers. Mm -hmm. Um, He just, it's like a toy. Yeah, he doesn't understand. He doesn't get, and he's six and a half, right? He still doesn't get how actual currency works. Right. We had... Somebody came up to us at church one day and said, ah, they'd been over at, to our house for dinner a night or two before that and handed you a $10 bill and said, um, Amos gave this to my son when we were at your house. Uh, just like, hey, you want a $10 bill? Like, he just doesn't get it. So Lily has gotten it pretty well. Yeah, she's getting it. So the way we do it is we have a, a little bucket jar thing it's three different jars yeah we got it on amazon you can look it up i think it's like kids money saving piggy bank and it's like three separate containers so it's three jars i think it's uh one says share one says spend one says save right right and so what we've laid out with them is any money that you get 80 percent can go into your spend jar correct you get to spend most of it but you're going to save 10 percent, and you're going to give 10%. So right. they take their 10% to church. They're saving their 10% for, you know, a to be determined larger expense down the road. And their 80%, they can blow on whatever dumb stuff they want to blow, which is what they do. Now, how do they get the money in the first place? That's another thing that we've struggled with, to be honest, um, because I agree 
I don't, I, I think they should have just some chores that they do that just, you're part of this family. So this is what you do. Yeah. And then if you want to earn other money, there are other chores you can do. Frankly, they are not at the age where they're particularly helpful with a lot of chores. Um, and so it's been hard to find those things where it's like, well, if you want to earn extra money, you can do this. It's one of those things where like, I could spend an hour supervising you doing this thing, or I could just do it myself in seven minutes. Right. So that's been a challenge. And it's one of those things where it's like, all right, well, could I teach him the lesson, but it's going to take me eight times as long. Yeah. I don't know. Well, one of the things that I would personally say from experience over the last couple of years that I feel like began to sink in the most was uh, we were actually at the farmer's market one day and they had a kid's market there. And there was a bunch of booths with different kids selling their wares. And it inspired Lily to do something. So she and her friend Abigail decided that they wanted to start a business, which then inspired Amos to want to start a business. And so back in May, Lily and Amos and Abigail each had a booth at this kids market, which they're going to do again in the fall. And so we sat down with them and we said, okay, where you want to do this, we're going to help you. We're going to give you kind of a, you know, quote unquote investment loan, but you have to pay back your loan. And then also you're going to learn about everything from your, you know, material expenses to, uh, you know, cost of goods to how to price things to how to market. I mean, all those kind of things. And that I would say was one of the biggest lessons. And so I realized that not everybody's going to have access to a kid's market or everybody's kids are going to want to be interested in that. But I would say like, I would say that was one of the things that sunk in for them the most about making, you know, earning money and spending it uh, afterwards. And I mean, I remember, especially with Lily and Abigail, because their business was joint. And by the end of the day and all this time, like they each earned like their profit was like $12. And they were like, that was it. And I'm like, yeah, let's give you some perspective right now on. You had to buy the materials and yeah. Pay the rent for the booth and all that stuff. Yeah. The other thing, and I will say for Lily in particular, now Lily uh, is about to turn nine. She's going to be nine within the next couple of weeks um, from when this airs. And the last couple of years, she participated in a research study. And the research study actually paid her in Target gift cards. And so I would take her to Target after she would do each session of the study and she and that was actually a huge help for just helping her understand how much things cost and i remember last year for her birthday we got her a target gift card and so the reason i'm setting all this up is i would say this could even be a kind of an introductory type thing is for birthdays christmases Ask friends or family to maybe get your kids a gift card to a store that you know that they like. And what you can do is take them to that store with that gift card and say, you can buy whatever you want with this gift card, but I'm not going to go over. I'm not going to go, you know, like I'm not going to help you uh, as far as like if you want to spend over the amount that's on the gift card. But I will say that like for Lily, she would go into Target and she'd be like, well, I want to buy this. 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 And I'd be like, you have $20 on this gift card. So you can't buy all those things. And so it really gave her the perspective of what is worth it as an expense and what is not. Yep. Um, so that and has been And sometimes really you have to make some bad decisions to figure out what's worth it. And there's not. definitely been times where both of our children have made extremely poor financial choices. <laughs> so like the farmer's market, yes. as an example. Yes. <laughs> Amos immediately took his money, went over to another booth and spent it on like some kind of ceramic football. It was a ceramic painted football. Yeah. And came running back over immediately crying because he already regretted his choice. Immediately. (laughs) Immediately. And to this day, I don't even know where that painted ceramic football is. It was $5 and he immediately regretted it. And so actually, I think it was like three weeks ago, the kids and I went to the farmer's market Amos asked if he could take some of his money. I said, yes. I said, you have, you can take 10 of your spending dollars. I'm not going to let you take more than that. And so we walked around. I mean, we got there first booth. He's wanting to buy everything. And I said, 
baby, no, like you regretted this the last time. So I made him walk around the entire farmer's market. And then in the end, he ended up buying like the thing. He, he bought this like little wooden cross and he bought these two cookies that he never even ate. Like I literally ended up having to throw the cookies away last week because they were bad. Yep. So uh, final thought on this with the farmer's market. The thing that I like about them doing the entrepreneurial thing is that it establishes that money doesn't just come from mom and dad. Right. Money comes from going out and creating some kind of value in the marketplace. Yeah. And I don't think you can ever start teaching that lesson too early. Yeah. Um, I do. I will say I know some people that, that use what's called the green light card where there's like an app and stuff. We personally have not used that, so I can't speak to it yet. But if we do, I will be sure to update. Okay. This is an extremely common question that we got. And so I'm just going to sum it up in this one question here. Um, but when I say I think 10 of the questions were similar to this, this is not an exaggeration. Okay. So Miranda Kinter said, what is a good dollar amount for retirement? How do I figure out how much is enough? Well, this is a pointless question. And I don't mean that in a demeaning way. Um, I just mean that it's impossible to answer. So let me give you an example of a couple of clients. So I have some clients who just retired. Well, she, she hadn't worked in years. He retired two years ago. Um, and they have their total savings, retirement accounts and everything is $175,000. Now, almost anybody would say, well, that's not enough to retire on. But here's the rest of their story. So, you know, they paid their house off in the late 90s, I think. Um, they just, they spend about $4,500 a month. They just don't spend much. And they're perfectly, ha it's not like they're pinching pennies. Right. They're happy at $4,500 a month. In fact, they would probably have to try to spend that much. Um, that's like helping their kids out with stuff too, if mm -hmm. they're spending $4,500 a month. Well, he was a state employee for 32 years. So he retired with a pension from the state of North Carolina, which is like $3,600 a month. And then his social security is another $1,800 a month. And then her social security is another $1,000 a month. So you add it all up and just these guaranteed income streams they have coming in is like $1,500 a month more than they could even spend on their wildest month. Right. And so that $175,000 they have, they're not even going to touch for years. In fact, they're going to add to that pot. And eventually, yes, inflation is going to catch up to their fixed income streams, but they're going to be in their early 80s before that happens. So they're going to spend 12 to 15 years adding to the pot while they're actually retired before they start pulling anything out of the pot. So their $175,000 is more than plenty. At the other end of the spectrum, I have clients who owned their own business for 40 years. Um, they had set up the business in such a way that they didn't have to pay much into social security, which is good along the way, right? But now as they're approaching retirement age, they're realizing, wow, we made a lot of money over the years, but we're not going to have much of a social security benefit because of the way we set the business up. We didn't pay that much into the system. And now they've saved a lot. They have almost $2 million, but because of their lack of social security, no pension, nothing like that, and all the travel that they want to do, like they spend a lot. They want to spend right. ten to $12,000 a month. Right. More than twice as much as this other couple. And so their nearly $2 million is not enough to fund their lifestyle. Okay. So it all depends on what you want your lifestyle to be. Is your house paid off? What kind of other income streams do you have in place? Like what there's debt you have. Yeah. There's just way too many variables to say, well, this is how much you need to have. People all the time come in and say, well, I heard you have to have a million dollars to be able to retire. Well, no, I just told you 175,000 works just fine for one couple and 2 million isn't even enough for another couple. Right. So it truly depends on you. Yeah. I think that is a, a great answer. And so I realize that that is for some of you going to be like, oh, I feel like that's a non-answer. Well, um, but well, I don't mean to make it into a commercial, no. but this is why you need a financial advisor, right? Yes. Because like we can figure this stuff out with you and determine like what your life looks like and how much money you need. Yeah. And it is also hard when you are, you know, 30 years old versus when you're 50 years old and you're suddenly thinking about retirement. So it just, it, it, it really is so variable. 
Okay, I'm going to kind of put you on the spot, and I don't know how, how well you can kind of quickly summarize this, but I remember a couple of months ago when you actually gave a sermon in church about this, about just like compound savings, and you you gave an illustration about like if you were 25 and started saving for retirement versus if you were, what, 35. Okay, so let's say you start saving $500 a month for retirement at age 25. This is just an illustration, but And yes. you do it until age 65. Yeah. 40 years. Yeah. Of $500 a month. Never did more, never did less. $500 a month for 40 years. Invested in the market over that time. If we assume average market returns, you'd have like $2.1 million at age 65 after 40 years of doing that. Right. All right. Let's say you didn't start until age 35. You still did $500 a month, but now you do it for 30 years instead of 40 years. How much money do you have at 65? Well, the knee-jerk reaction is, well, I did it for 30 years instead of 40 years. So I have three-fourths as much, right? I have 75% as much money. So if I had a little over $2 million, I have $1.5 million at age 65. Wrong. You actually have like $870,000. Because that extra 10 years of compounding in the way the market works is huge. Right. So the earlier you can start, the better. And uh, I, you know that's probably depressing for some people that are 41 and haven't started, but... The point is like the, that game works just as well from 41 to 65. If you wait until 51, you're that much further behind. Right. So get the compounding on your side and get going with it. I'm going to take a quick break from my chat with my very hunky husband to let you know about our partner of the show. And that is Mama Suds. As you know, Mama Suds has been a partner of the show for a very long time. I have personally used their products. We have used their products. My husband is here and he can also attest to the fact that we use their products every single day. They're all purpose household cleaner every single Wednesday. It's true. My husband cleans our bathrooms and he uses Mama Suds. Well, you noticed that. I do. I didn't know if you noticed that I cleaned the bathrooms. Of course I notice <laughs> every single week. I do our laundry. I use that Mama Suds stain stick, the Mama Suds laundry soap. Uh, I have Mama Suds Castile soap in our soap dispensers throughout the house. I even use that Mama Suds household cleaner on our kitchen. I mean, everything. They're coming out with shower steamers this month, uh, the Oxy powder in the laundry. I'm telling you, again, John Stillman is my witness right here. We use their products in our house every single month. I love that I'm supporting a mama-owned business. Michelle Smith has been on the show. You can go back and listen to my interview with her. She's incredible. But what I love about Mama Suds is not only the fact that are the products clean, safe, non-toxic, you can use them in so many different ways, but also they actually work. They smell good and they work. It's a lot of times you buy those non-toxic products and they don't actually work, but Mama Suds products do. So I highly recommend them. Go to mamasuds.com, M-A-M-A-S-U-D-S.com. Use the code Molly and that gets you 15% off your order. So go check them out again, mamasuds.com. Use the code Molly for 15% off your order. And back to my conversation with my very hunky husband, John. Okay, so the next question that I want to ask, I think is important because there's a quite a few variables to this and uh, just is important for a lot of people because this is the reality for honestly, I don't know the exact statistic, but probably the majority of Americans. Um, and this was submitted by Kitty Boo 16. Um, she said, where do you start when you're living paycheck to paycheck and are working to pay debt off? Um, and kind of she continued, and there were a couple other questions that were similar to this is like, how do I even think about saving for retirement when I'm living to paycheck to paycheck? How do I pay debt off when I'm living paycheck to paycheck? I will just quickly say before I let John speak um, is, you know, this was my reality for a very long time is I got myself into a pretty significant amount of debt. And I was not only living paycheck to paycheck, I was barely scraping by when you and you I were met. living paycheck to about three days before the next. <laughs> yes. Paycheck. I mean, truly like what? And then let's figure out how to bridge that gap. Yes. I mean, John can attest to this. He is my witness um, as, as well as the Lord is my witness is I was not just living paycheck to paycheck. I really was living paycheck to not even the next paycheck. And so this was my reality. And so I, but, but whether this was the right decision or not, for the majority of the time I was working to pay off my debt, I didn't talk to anybody about this. And this was something I went through mostly on my own. And it was extremely isolating 
it was really difficult. And but I had a mindset of like, well, I got myself into this financial mess, so I'm going to get myself out of it. Now, there are obviously a, a wealth of a million how to get out of debt books out there. You know, there's different philosophies, whether it's Dave Ramsey or whatever. I didn't know about Dave Ramsey at the time. Um, some people obviously have very strong opinions about Dave Ramsey. I even had a question that was submitted about why is Dave Ramsey the worst? So, I mean, there's truly like a, a spectrum of of opinions on Dave Ramsey. I had not heard about him at the time, but at the, at the time that I was getting out of debt, um, mine was just, uh, I consolidated my debt with a nonprofit credit counseling agency. And I worked a million jobs <laughs> and did whatever I could to get out of debt. And you're right. At the time, the idea of saving for retirement, the idea of giving financially, the idea of um, just saving in general was a completely foreign concept to me. So it was a matter of just changing my entire perspective and uh, even just mental state when it comes to finances. And that was a, a process and a journey. And I feel like that's a whole nother podcast in and of itself. And honestly, something I'm going to write a lot about in my book. So I want to come at this particular question with that context of, of this is something that was my personal reality, whereas this was never John's reality. You were never living paycheck to paycheck. Biggest thing I see with people who are in this boat um, is they're so stressed and so frustrated. And in a lot of cases, just don't really understand how the financial system in our country works, um, that they just, they can't get out of their own way. And no matter how dark the night is in your financial picture, how, how bad it looks, there is a path out of it. And it's not going to be an overnight fix in most right. cases. In some cases, you know, I've told people, look, just take this money that you have over here that you're sitting on doing nothing with, cash out this mutual fund that you put money in years ago and pay off the credit card. Like it's very simple and then you're good. But most of the time it's, all right, here's a two-year plan and it's going to be a challenging two years. And if it's a married couple, y'all are going to have to work together on this and right. hold each other accountable. Yes. But here's your path out. And, you know, some people just dial in and they get on it and they get it done. And some people just, you know, fixing their situation is a little too hard. And so they're just going to live in the misery forever. Right. Uh, so you got to decide which of those people you want to be. Yeah. But there's always a path out. Generally, it looks something like let's really define our priorities. What are the things that we have to spend money on? Rent, car payment, minimum payments on all of our debt, food you know, kids, doctors, appointments, whatever. Define your priorities, your, your must-haves. Mm -hmm. And then let's look at what can we do to increase income? Right. Because in so many of these cases, yes, it's, well, you know, I already work 40 hours a week. What more can I do? Well, there's a lot more hours in a week than 40. And I realize you have to sleep some of it and take care of your kids some of it, but you don't have to work a nine-to-five job. You can drive for... Uber or DoorDash on the weekends. Like there is in our quote unquote gig economy, plenty of stuff you can do. Yeah. So look at how you can increase income. And often if it's like you can increase your income by $400 a month and put all of that toward debt, I can show you, well, look how quickly this stuff all starts to melt away if all that extra income goes toward debt. Yeah. So, you know, I could talk about this for hours, but Bottom line is there's always a way out. It's just a question of how disciplined and motivated are you to make it happen? Yes. And I will say that like, yeah, I, and I realize this is a lot of times this question gets asked. And I would just say it from personal experience, this question gets asked a lot over the last couple of years by people who kind of want a quick fix answer. Yep, there's not one. And the reality you is- You made the mess. Not. Yes. Whether it was all your fault or not. Or not. The mess happened- Maybe quickly, yeah. but often the mess happened over a long period of time. Death by and whether mess. the mess happened quickly or slowly, the fix is often, almost always, never quick. Right. And for me and the situation that I found myself in, my 
issue was not just the fact that I was in debt, but I had an income issue. And so what I did, and I'm not saying that this was awesome. I'm saying it was miserable, but I got to a point where I needed to increase my income. And so there was a point where I quite literally, and John met me at this time, I was working four jobs, zero stars, do not recommend, but I would go, I would work two jobs a day, seven days a week. I was working at a restaurant, an art gallery. Um, I was working retail. I was working um, at a radio station, but I worked my rear end off at each job and eventually got to a point where the job that I actually wanted to do full time saw the work that I was putting in, saw the work ethic that I had and hired me full time. And I was able to increase my income that way and start kind of, you know, quitting some of the other extraneous jobs. It wasn't fun, but I had to put in the work. And if Uber existed at the time, I would have absolutely driven for Uber on the side. I, if, if DoorDash had existed at the time, I would have absolutely done that because those are the types of things that you can kind of do on your own schedule to increase your income. Again, it's not fun. It's not the quote unquote quick fix answer that a lot of us want. But the reality is, is that if you want to get out of debt, if you want to get away from more of a paycheck to paycheck mentality, I think the benefit that you have in the current economy that we live in, you know, inflation aside, all of the, the reality, I mean, every single place we walk into, retail establishments, restaurants, they are dying for employees right now begging people to come work for them. And so it's not that there is a lack of jobs right now. And I remember that there was a time where I was delivering cheese fries to in intoxicated individuals at 1.30 in the morning on a Friday night at a bar. And I was going, I have a college degree and I was a high school teacher. And how am I delivering cheese fries to drunk people at 1 a.m.? but I knew that that was what I had to do. And so it is a mindset shift. I realize that's an unpopular answer, but it is a reality. All right, so let's think about this from the standpoint of somebody who maybe has kids to take care of. They can't work four jobs like you did when you were 24. Mm -hmm. there is, the mechanics of what you need to do might be different, but the principle is the same. Let's think about what you had to do to work four jobs to deliver fries to drunk people when you had a college degree. You had to lay down your pride. Right. Right? So if you're a single mom and you say, well, I can't work four jobs. Well, you might have to lay down your pride from the standpoint of, you just gotta get some people in your life that can walk through this with you. Right. Like you gotta get some people you can talk to about this. People that you see are wise or good with money and say, look, I'm, I'm not talking about going and asking them for money. Mm -hmm. I'm just saying, Talk to somebody who can say, all right, well, um, here's, here's what you need to do. And it doesn't have to be a financial advisor per se. It could be somebody at church or somebody at your office or whatever that you respect and seems to have their life together. Just lay down your pride and say, look, I, I think I've made a mess of my financial life and I don't really know what to do. Can you help? Yeah. And very often people like that will say, uh, yeah, maybe they will help you out with things and just randomly bless you with things in life. Or maybe they'll be able to point you in the direction of, well, here's a way I know you can make some money that fits in with your life and fits in with your kid's schedule. So the principle is lay down your pride. What then you do after that pride is laid down might be different for different people. Right. Such a good answer. Okay. This question was submitted by Kelly Ann Photos. She said, are you comfortable talking about money as in like your salary investments, et cetera, with your family and friends? How would you answer that? Well, so we have this weird cultural thing where for some reason it's inappropriate to talk about money. In fact, John, John Mulaney, stand-up comedian, has a great bit about this where um, he, he says, well, I was talking to my friend the other day and he told me he would rather his wife die than have to go through a divorce with her. He told me that. And then later I asked him, I said, hey, how much are you going to make this year? And he said, hey, that's personal, um, <laughs> which is a, a great explanation of, 
of how we've just made money this thing that you don't talk about in mm-hmm. our culture. In other cultures, this isn't how it is. Mm-hmm. So in like Indian culture, a lot of times, like this is one of the first things you talk about when you meet somebody. You like introduce yourself and say, how much do you make? Because that's like how they size each other up. Um, and it's just a different culture, a different system. But this is not a global thing that you don't talk about money. This right. is our little American world. And this drives me crazy in families because you have parents that don't talk to their kids about money. You know, you have parents in their 70s, kids in their 40s that they just don't communicate about money. And there's no, nobody knows what the financial situation is of the parent, the aging parents. And then, you know, they die and there's either this mess in the estate or there's all this money that the kids weren't anticipating and they don't know what to do with it. And it's like, why can't we have these generational conversations about money? Mm-hmm. So it's not even just friends, it's family. Like we just don't talk about it. And I wish we could change that. And I don't know how to change it. I mean, it's one of the things I do with my clients. I'm very focused on these generational conversations. I have a couple of clients where I have three different generations, grandmother, her kids and her grandkids. I work with all of them. Um, It's been a big focus of mine for the last couple of years to work with the kids of my existing clients because I want to facilitate these generational conversations. And I don't know how we got here that we don't talk about it. I'm absolutely comfortable talking about it. Now, part of that probably has to do with the fact that you know, there's 200 families out there where I know exactly how much they make and how much they save and what they spend money on. And so for me to just talk about it with a friend is no big deal. Uh, but yeah, for a lot of people it's uncomfortable and I would say you just need to get over that. I mean, it's just kind of a thing that is part of your life and I don't see the harm in having the conversation. Yeah. I think that's a great answer and I have nothing to add to that. Okay. Relish three, AKA morel. Old neighbor of ours. Former next door neighbor. I know. Kind of miss her. I do Morel. I miss When she lived next door, I was like, ah, I can't wait to move away from Morel. No, yeah. <laughs> but now I kind of miss her. Morel, he doesn't mean that. <laughs> okay. Uh, but she, this is a good one. I think this is a quick answer type one. She said 529 or IRA for kids. Even though I can't figure out how the kids can get IRAs, the internet reading sucks. Well, I think you answered your own question yeah. there, Morel. <laughs> do, the, do the 529. So there's this theory that some people have that you set up a Roth IRA and you fund it and then you take the money that you put in back out because you can get a tax. No, that's not the best use of a Roth IRA Um, because she's right. The kids can't have a Roth IRA. You have to have earned income to have an IRA or a Roth IRA. So what you'd be doing, if you're saving in an IRA for your kid's education, you're not saving it in an IRA for them. You're saving it in your own IRA and you should be using that IRA for your own retirement savings, not for the kid's college. So yes, do the 529. Also, the ESA is a similar thing. Um, The 529 just allows you to put more money in on an annual basis. So the way it works is basically you put the money in. There's no tax break when you put the money in. And depending on your state, you might get a, a state income tax break, but there's no federal deduction when you put money in the 529. But all that money grows tax free. So if you contribute $10,000 over the course of your kid's life and it grows to $25,000 over that time, you're not going to pay taxes on that $15,000 of growth. It all comes out tax-free as long as you use it for educational expenses. If your kid doesn't go to college, you can transfer it to another kid. You can transfer it to a grandkid. It can all move around within the family. So uh, yes, if you pull it out for non-educational expenses, there's a bit of a penalty, but Uh, it's actually pretty easy to move it to somebody who's going to use it for educational expenses. Yeah. Okay. Great answer. Okay. Uh, One more formally submitted question, then we'll uh, end on just a a bit of wisdom. Okay. Last uh, formally submitted question that is Mojo Mom 79 said, how do you save for a vacation when there are so many other priorities out there? Well, I think you need to define your priorities and define what you want a vacation to look like. So um, you don't have to spend $6,000 on a vacation. Like you're allowed to, you don't lose your American citizenship if you just like drive up to the creation and Noah's Ark Museum in Kentucky. (laughs) Or if you take the kids to Washington DC for a couple days and walk around some museums. Like you don't have to go to Aruba Mm -hmm. or 
Disney World or whatever. I, I understand that there's like peer pressure to do those things. And maybe like you really want to do them yourself. And maybe you do that every five years. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have to be an annual thing. Right. So the first thing I'd say is if things are that tight that you're not sure how you're going to save for a vacation, I would submit to you that the vacation probably isn't a priority. Mm-hmm. So you can find ways to do trips that isn't, you know, that doesn't involve a swim up bar. Right. Don't get me wrong. I love a swim up bar, but every vacation doesn't have to include that. Maybe I'm biased because when I was a kid, like we didn't really do, I think back on it, we didn't really do vacations very often. Like we did trips, Mm -hmm. but it was things like Washington, DC. I remember one year we drove to Mississippi. We drove to Tupelo, Mississippi and went to Elvis's birthplace. Yeah. Like my dad had a conference down there. So we drove down there and we made a quote unquote vacation out of it, right? Didn't cost much money. Um, so you can find ways to get away without it being something you have to spend the entire year saving for. Yeah. The thing that I wanted to bring up that I think is interesting too is deciding, and again, this is not a clear cut answer, but is deciding what are priorities for you and your family. So we have a family uh, who is some of our best friends in the entire world. We hang out with them all the time. For them, travel and vacation is a huge priority. And so they are extremely frugal in other areas. For example, both mom and dad drive cars that are 15 years old. I think uh, mom's car has like 275,000 miles. You know exactly what I'm talking about. They get somewhere they need to go. But their cars are not fancy. Their cars have 200 plus thousand miles on them. Uh, They just, I mean, up until the past year, from the time I've known them for the last 10 plus years, they've had the same furniture, the same, like they don't wear, you know, they don't go shopping for fancy clothes. Their budget reflects their priority and they really like to travel. And so that's where their money goes, but they are very frugal in other areas. And they're also not traveling at the expense of their own retirement savings or their future family stability. Like all those things are taken care of. Right. And yeah, their discretionary income doesn't go to cars or expensive date nights. Right. Right. It goes to travel. Right. And then um, another family that we know for them, they do travel a lot, uh, but then they also live a pretty lavish lifestyle. And so then when they go to travel, they feel like they can't travel as many places because they don't have the the budget that our other friends have. And it's just like, well, no, your budget is actually the same. It's just your finances are going to other places. You know, we are at a place in our family and in our marriage where we really don't travel ever, um, especially now that we live on a farm. And it's just a whole lot more difficult for us to leave because we have to get somebody to come and stay here and all of that. And so, yes, once a year, we take, you know, your business travel, like when we went to Portugal last year, we went to Hawaii. Yes, those are, we are really thankful that we get to go to those places, but you and I are free. And so we take the ability that that you and I are free because it's a business trip for you and we just are paying for the kids. And so in that, like once a year, yes, we do one big vacation, but it's really like we wouldn't be able to do that trip otherwise. Yeah. Well, it's not like we wouldn't be able to do it, but we but would you, not yes. prioritize we would not, that correct. as a trip. Like that's not what we'd spend our money on. Right. So you just have to decide what I have to imagine uh, social media has played a big role in this yes. because 100%. people posting their vacation pictures yeah. is a big part of social media, right? So you see all your friends traveling to all these places and you feel like, well, I have to do this. this is what I'm supposed to do. You don't have to. You don't. Figure out what makes sense for your family, what's logical and what's not going to hurt your family financially long-term. And if a $5,000 vacation is not what you need to be doing, don't do it. Right. I mean, and also think about your kids as well. I mean, what you want to do and what your kids want to do. Yes. I mean, our kids loved and we'll talk about Hawaii and Portugal for the rest of their lives. Our six-year-old son also cried when we left Gatlinburg, Tennessee. And just like when we got home, sobbed in his bed. I kid you not, John is my witness, sobbed in his bed going, I want to go back to Gatlinburg. And so 
maybe Gatlinburg is yep. your your very fancy it, vacation. It takes less to impress kids than you probably think. <laughs> yes, yes. So, um, but you know, every once in a while, you you want to make those memories and you want to do a big vacation. So I think that's good. Okay. So uh, the last question is a question I'm going to ask, and I feel like this just kind of summarizes the rest of the questions that we didn't get to because there were a lot. Um, and that is really, if there is somebody who just feels like finances are an area that feel out of control, whether they make a lot, whether they are a single woman with no kids, you know, but it just kind of makes an okay amount of money. I feel like any category of person can fall into this uh, mindset of just they don't know where to start when it comes to getting their finances order in order when it, whether it comes to where it comes to uh saving for retirement where it comes to giving uh anything if somebody just feels like they're in that place where they just feel totally lost where do you recommend them start is it sitting down with a financial advisor is it just tracking their expenses for a few months like where where to begin well, anybody who I've ever talked to who would uh, be in what you might consider financial despair, um, they they don't have a good command of their numbers. By that, I mean, they don't really know what's coming in and what's going out. So usually there's a lack of understanding about how much they spend in different areas. Like they can tell you what their bills are. Our mortgage is this much. Our rent is this much. We pay usually about this much for the electricity. The cable is this much. They know those fixed bills. Right. What they don't know is what they spend on groceries okay. and what they spend on just general miscellaneous expenses. So the first best thing you can do is just start tracking that. Like get your hands around the numbers. Spend a couple of months. A lot of people find this very tedious and miserable, but just like download your bank statements, your credit card statements, just look at every expense and start categorizing. How much do I spend in each category? Most people wildly underestimate how much they spend on food. You go out to eat, you know, you hit this drive-through and that drive-through, that stuff adds up really quick and you don't realize it. You think, yeah, I spend maybe $100 a month going out to eat and it's like 350. So you just have to get an understanding of the numbers. If there's one first step to take, it would be that. And I'm not telling you to then immediately make changes to those categories. But you're an adult. You can look at the numbers and see, wow, I spend a lot more at Starbucks than I thought. Maybe I should scale that back. So once you actually have the numbers in front of you, most people are going to be equipped to start kind of seeing where the problem is. You can see, is it a spending problem or is it an income problem? Yeah. Well, I thought this was incredibly helpful and I'm uh, really thankful for how smart you are. Thanks for being here. Yeah, well, I'm thankful for how pretty you are. <laughs> Thank you guys so much for listening. Uh, if this was your first time listening to the show, uh, welcome, new friend. And be sure to visit the archives for past shows featuring incredible people who are trying to, again, make a positive impact no matter uh, where they are and what they do for a living. If you're a regular listener of the show, thank you for tuning in week in and week out. Thank you for your support. Head on over to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen. Click that follow or subscribe button and uh, take a moment to leave a review. It really does help to let me know what you're liking, how the show is impacting you. Thank you to the incredible team at Third Wheel Media. And as always, go do something good with purpose on purpose. 